But here's, here's the way it was. You know, we had been out to the moon a number of times already, and we landed on 11 and 12 very successfully in 13. We, we were not cocky at all because we knew we were still in a flight risk situation. It's just anytime you put that much energy under you and go that far, you, know, you better watch out. So in Apollo 13, we were just cruising along. Everything was fine. And we were 200,000 miles from Earth and had about roughly 50,000 miles to go to get to the moon. When an oxygen tank back in the back in the service module, which is behind the command module, exploded. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. If you follow the headlines about spaceflight these days, you'll know that several countries are working to land humans on the moon again. I was a teenager when the first men landed on the moon in 1969. Jerry Griffin, my guest today, was a young engineer, barely in his 30s, who was responsible during every Apollo mission for the guidance, navigation, and flight control systems that would steer the capsules to the moon and back again. He worked in mission control during every Apollo mission and was the guy in the hot seat for all the big moments during three lunar landings and the dramatic improvised rescue of the Apollo 13 crew. Many years later, director Ron Howard chose him as a technical advisor for the big screen drama Apollo 13, starring Tom Hanks, Gary Sinise, Kevin Bacon, and Bill Paxson. I'm sure you'll enjoy his insider stories from the set of Apollo 13, the movie, and trust you'll also take away some useful ideas about leadership, trust, and culture from his work in both public and private sectors. So let's get started. Jerry Griffin, it is so great to see you and chat with you again. It's been ages. Yes, it has. Too long. Too long, as a matter yeah. of fact. Well, you've stayed close by the NASA camp in Central Texas, and I, as you know, have wandered other places, but... Glad, glad we haven't lost contact altogether. Yeah, you've wandered to the deep ocean and everywhere else. So. <laughs> yeah, vagabond, yeah. my story. Oh, I was thinking of you in particular this weekend because you and your family are fiercely proud Texas Aggies. And A&M just played a great game against Auburn and pulled it out. They've been having a pretty good season. So uh, tell me a little bit about your pathway. You're Texas born and raised, and I know you went to A&M, but... What were you thinking about when you were in college that your life was going to be about? You know, it was interesting. I got to A&M and to aviation and aeronautical 
engineering at the time, mainly because of an older brother who had been a B-17 pilot in uh, WW-2. And although he didn't get into combat, and Ken was, uh, to me, was about six foot three. Actually, he was about five nine. But I wanted to be an aviator, and I wanted to study aviation. So I went to A&M. That was all military school in those days. So it was kind of easy to get into the military piece and also to study aeronautical engineering. And then I, I served in a fighter squadron, which was my first taste of, of what I would call a real team, teamwork basis, which fit me well later on in, in the space uh, business. I was in that fighter squadron when um, NASA was formed, and I knew it almost immediately. I've got to get in that business. I've just got to get into, that, into the manned space business. So I started thinking about it. I had a four-year commitment on active duty, which I got out in 1960. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I started trying to get to NASA. I had to, it took me a while because they were really busy with Mercury at that point. And I finally got in the door in 1964. The agency had just wrapped up Mercury. They'd done all the final reports and all that. We were about to start flying Gemini. Well, Gemini was a two-man rendezvous vehicle that we had to do those missions in order to move on to Apollo. And almost immediately, I walked in the door in Houston, and they said, you want to be a Gemini flight controller? And I said, you bet. So uh, my specialty had been guidance and navigation control systems. And so I was a GNC, a guidance, navigation, and control guy for all of Mercury from the first flight on. From Gemini, all of Gemini. Yeah, from Gemini on. Now, you and I are space geeks, Jerry, and we know what GNC means, but amplify a little bit on what does that mean you do when you're a guidance, nav, and control flight controller? What are you responsible for? Yeah, the guidance and navigation control guy, call sign GNC, was a systems analyst. He analyzed those systems of the guidance and navigation control system in order to make sure they were healthy and functional, and you reported directly to the flight director what you saw and, and uh, what you thought needed to be done, et cetera. So it, at that point, I was a little older than most of the other people in the control center. I was 29, and I'd gotten there four year, after four years of active duty. There were guys in the control center that were 21, 22, 23. In fact, the average age in the control center for Gemini was uh, 27 when it started. So it was a young, young crowd. Yeah, and if you saw something in your data, I mean, those those are positions of huge responsibility. If you saw something in your data that wasn't right, like in the countdown to launch, and and you said, I am no go, your, I mean, your word counted. The, space, the launch stopped. It sure did. It, it stopped. So it was a hefty responsibility for a bunch of young people. And throughout the control center, that was... That was it all the way. The flight director had the ultimate call, but if I said no go, he had no choice, particularly in a time critical city where things are happening fast. Uh, the flight director had no choice but to forward that on and call a halt. And that carried into orbit, for instance, if you were going to do a big maneuver and I could see that the engine in the back of the uh, service module was not right, 
uh, I could stop a maneuver. And uh, so it was, a, it was fun. And you know, the, the piece that, that helped, the fact that I'd been in a fighter squadron as a young guy, I was a weapon systems officer in the backseat of a supersonic F-101B Voodoo operating a fire control system. We had two nuclear weapons, kiloton and a half each, air to air, and two heat seekers. And I was, when I first got in that squadron, I was 23 years old. And might pull the trigger on a nuclear missile. That's right. And so that experience helped me as I got in more to GNC for Gemini, it helped me. Uh, I, I was used to making critical decisions about things that could hurt people. And, and in fact, several of the guys in the control center, the flight directors particularly, were former military aviators. And uh, they all, I, we all said the same thing. It was, it was kind of like a feel like that. And um, we had some interesting things in Gemini. You know, we spun up Gemini 8 to the point that we had to abort uh, Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott. You're in orbit trying to rendezvous and the two stages, instead of clamping together nicely, start spinning out of control. Yeah, we actually, and we did get rendezvoused with the Agena vehicle, which was unmanned, and then it started spinning up. They thought it was the Agena got off, got worse because they didn't have enough mass out there to slow them down. Yeah, Neil had quite a wrestling match on his hands yeah, with that right. one. And so, um, but we got them down in the way up in a part of the Pacific that we didn't have any recovery forces, but we did have a destroyer that got to them and picked them up. Now, my, and my point in all of that is that it didn't take long for me to run in. That was my system that had screwed up. It didn't take me long to uh, get into a position where I was really concerned that I was going to have to cause the abort or even a injury or a fatality on my watch. And it didn't happen. Of course, we got them, got them down okay. All of those, it, it was interesting, the makeup of the control center. Uh, these young guys, and they were all guys then, very few women engineers around. We had some that were in the uh, mission planning business and they did a great job, but I, I don't really think they were interested in operations. You know, an operations person take something that somebody else designed, somebody else built, and then try to make it work the way it was supposed to. So we had these guys that I don't, th I think one of the reasons we were successful is that we didn't know we couldn't do it. We didn't think we couldn't, it was just that, uh, let's get on with it and, and make it happen. Those early years set me up for later uh, when I became a flight director, which is another story. Yeah. Do you think, Jerry, in those early days, if I think about what I know of the whole, everyone in the control room, including the flight director, the head of NASA in Houston, all the way up to the head of NASA in Washington, in that era, they all had really solid engineering credentials. There was no one who was out of a business or a political or just an administrative background. Do you think that helped that you know, everyone above you knew the kind of challenge you were undertaking and helped shield you from outside influences and, and left you the, the running room to try things and make those decisions? You maybe weren't so second-guessed or micromanaged? I think you're exactly right. And, and while we're on that, there are two secrets, I think, that made 
in my time because I was there for Gemini and I was also there for Apollo that followed it. Um, there were, we had two secrets to success that it took all of us a while, a number of years to figure it out because we were right in the middle of it and we didn't have time to analyze what we were trying to do. So one was the fact that simulations and training, and that's another subject, but what you're hitting on is leadership. Our leadership was fantastic. You're right that by and large, most of them were technical background, either science or engineering. Now that was not quite true at the very top. At the uh, very top of the agency, one time we had Jim Webb, and Jim Webb came from Bureau of the Budget at the time, but it later became OMB. He was a finance guy and a politician. He knew how to work the system and he was a master at it. And so he was really important to us in those early years. Later, we had people with more technical background, but below him were all technical people. There was a trust both down and up when I was a flight director, and I'll tell you, I got there later, but when I was a flight director on Apollo 13, this is just an example of that leadership quality. When the oxygen tank exploded and we had a problem and we were in a survival mode, which we can talk about later too, the options were, we had about four options to get them home. And so my team went to work on consumables, how much, I've got left of oxygen and water and power and food and all that. And Glenn Lunny's team, another flight director, his team worried about the different trajectory options that we had. So we had four options. We could have just turned around and done a direct burn everything and, and turn the vector and just come straight back to earth. It left us with no fuel. And then there were intermediate steps and then there was the step that uh, we ultimately took, which was to go around the moon, let it hit us back toward Earth, and then speed it up with a maneuver of the, of the descent engine on the lunar module. And um, we had all these options, and, and we decided, Glenn and I said, you know, we need to brief the top of the agency. So we took, we went to the other control floor. There were two control centers in Building 30, into the viewing room, everything was turned off except the lights in the viewing room, it's kind of eerie. And here's the two young guys. I, by that time was, I think 31 and, or 32, and Glenn was two years younger than I was. So we got these two young guys and we're looking up at these guys sitting in the viewing room and we're looking into the eyes of the administrator of the agency, Tom Payne. Uh, we had Deke Slayton, we had Max Fajay, we had Chris Kraft, we had... Deke Slayton of Mercury fame and head of the astronaut office, yeah, Chris Kraft. All the leadership people in the business, even some other center directors. We briefed them and we got to the end and we said, we favor what we call PC plus two, which meant two hours after we went around the moon, we'd speed up and we could get them home almost a day earlier and get, them, get a carrier underneath them so that to recover from the water. So we got to the end and we said, that's our recommendation. And there was a very, very awkward silence. Nobody said anything. I, you know, 
so many times today, particularly you hear, well, why didn't you think of this? And what about that? And it, back and, you know, well, I wouldn't do that. I'd do this, you know, no, it was just silence. Finally, the head of the agency, Tom Payne, it gives me chills to, to remember this. He looked at us and he said, what can we do to help you, man? That's all he said. What can we do to help you? We both That's leadership. kind of said, we got it, sir. And we'll take it from here. So there was a case where leadership, in those days, we pushed decisions down. And even from the flight director, we pushed decisions down and on down and on down. Every organization that grows, ultimately, decisions started being pulled up higher and higher and higher. And I can tell you that today, it's natural. It happens. There are decisions made at NASA headquarters that used to be made at the branch level in a center. By a 30-year-old at a branch yeah. in the center. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. It's, it's very, it, it, it just crawls into the system. It, people get elevated and they take their decisions with them. Or they say, oh, well, we can, why a decision made inside the Beltway is better than one made in a field center. <laughs> Particularly on a technical <laughs> yeah. item. Yeah. Let, me make, let me make sure I've looked. Yeah. Heather Wilson, when she was Secretary of the Air Force, uh, coined I, what I thought was a great line, getting at just this kind of thing. She said, there are nowadays way too many more reviewers than there are doers. And back then, there, as your story just shows, there was a whole lot of doers. And that whole room full in the viewing room of the biggest names in spaceflight I mean, towering figures that you kind of ran by, Tom Payne and probably George Miller. George Lowe was there. George Lowe. I mean, these are, you know, this is like giving a, proposing a football play to Brady or to yeah. Rogers exactly. or somebody, and they just say, how can I help you? I mean, it's, it's like mega stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And, you know, the trust, the trust side of that was really important. They trusted us, and we trusted them. They looked out for us. Well, you also trusted that they were not going to hijack your decisions, decisions yep. that were rightfully yours. Yep. Let's go on into Apollo, now that you mentioned it. You, you were in the control center as a flight controller, as you said, and then later you, you sort of rose up the ranks to flight director. And my, met, my metaphor for that is the flight controllers are like the individual instruments in an orchestra, and the flight director is the maestro and the conductor, and just probably knows a lot about and maybe even is pretty darn good at playing several of the instruments, but now the job is orchestrate and coordinate and you know make sure the information's getting everybody. And you you worked on every one of the Apollo manned missions. You were in a position of responsibility on three of the lunar landings, 14, 16, and 17. And you were, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about Apollo 13, because you were in the hot seat as you said, as guidance, nav, and control. So it's, it's kind of some part of your system that either is or isn't going to get these guys home. We know where they are. We know where we need them to be, and we have the systems to get them there. We know the story from the movie and things like that. I want to know, what did it feel like to be in the midst of that? What, what were you aware of at the time other than solve the problem, get these guys home? Uh, take us inside that moment. Apollo 13 was kind of the ultimate test, I think, of mission control and the astronauts and everything else below us. I'm talking about, we were 
you always hear about astronauts and mission control because we talk a lot for missions long, long, long. But we had this giant iceberg that you couldn't see below us. It was helping us. So it, it wasn't all our wit and understanding of what was going on. But here's, here's the way it was. You know, we had been out to the moon a number of times already, and we landed on 11 and 12 very successfully in 13. We, we were not cocky at all because we knew we were still in a flight risk situation. It's just anytime you put that much energy under you and go that far, you, know, you better watch out. So in Apollo 13, we were just cruising along. Everything was fine. And we were 200,000 miles from Earth and had about roughly 50,000 miles to go to get to the moon. When an oxygen tank back in the back in the service module, which is behind the command module, exploded. That's what you know now, but nobody knew quite what had happened at that moment, right? That's right. You're exactly right. What happened was, is that we knew something, a loud bang, the crew reported a loud bang, and then we started losing oxygen. First, we thought it might be instrumentation. Uh, that was kind of the first thing to look at. After a while, it like was Like the clear. flaky sensor on your tire pressure. Yeah, like a tire pressure gone wrong. But that proved not to be the case. It just kept going on down and on down. Actually, within about 20, 30 minutes, we made the decision to get over into the lunar module through the tunnel that we're connecting the two and use it as a lifeboat to get home. Did it have its own oxygen tanks? It had its own oxygen, gaseous, not uh, liquid like we had. So not as much. Yeah. It also had uh, power, a lot of power in it. And we knew if we lost all of our oxygen, we were going to lose fuel cells Fuel cells, you put hydrogen and oxygen in, you get power and beautiful water that you use. You need it for drinking, for cooling, for all kinds of things. And we knew we were going to lose the, if it kept on going, which it did, we were going to lose the fuel cells so we couldn't produce any water. But we had water over there. There were some changes made after that mission to put more water on board, stored water. But... It, it started out kind of interesting. I, I had just my shift of flight controllers. I was the goal team. I was goal flight. We had just come off duty, and I was out playing in a softball game. That's how relaxed we were. And I turned it over to Gene Kranz, who was the uh, flight director that followed me. And uh, they came out to the softball field and got us and said, you better come back. We've had a problem. So we walked back in. The room was interesting. That's uh, another story about the movie. But the room was calm. There were more people in the room. But you could tell by the look on their face that we were in deep stuff. So I waited for a while. And about the time they made the, Glenn was on duty by then, he had relieved Gene Kranz. Glenn Lunny was back on duty with his team. And Glenn actually made the call to get into the lunar module and power it up. And here was the really tough thing about Apollo 13 is that we powered the command module and the service module completely off. We had to have that command module and its heat shield to get back into the Earth's atmosphere. And the lunar module couldn't do that for you. So we immediately got in there, powered down the CSM, the command service module, all the way. Never had been done in flight. So you're not altogether positive it'll power back up the way. That's right. And 
when you start a command module or any spacecraft on the ground, you've got what we call GSE, ground support equipment. You got power, you got water and all kinds of things that are helping yeah, you. Can, you can jumpstart it you if can something jump doesn't go right. And <laughs> you got plenty of power. You can kind of turn on everything at once. We didn't have that much battery power, so it had to come up very slowly. And they had to try different ways to do things. And this is where the astronauts and the simulation capability and the companies that built this stuff all went to work saying, okay, now how do we get this thing back on? And that went on for about two and a half, three days before we finally got that checklist up to them. In fact, Jim Lovell got a little upset that we were late with that checklist, but trying to make sure we didn't want them to stop, start popping circuit breakers and things like that. So it was a calm transition by, by control center standards. Now, yeah, there was pressure. And when, when Ron Howard came down and he was trying to decide whether to make a movie about Apollo 13, he said, were you guys scared? He got about a half a dozen of us around and he said, were you guys scared? And we looked at him, no, that's not the right term. We were trained. This is what we were trained to do. And now we've run into a big one and we got to figure this out. And by the way, failure is not an option was never said in the real <laughs> thing. That was a movie creation because it was built on something we talk, kept talking to them that we had options. As long as we have options, keep trying, keep trying, don't give up. So uh, anyway, they, they finally said, when, actually when Ron Howard left, I didn't think he was going to make a movie of it because he said, I read the transcript, it sounds like a normal mission. And the reason I bring that up is that was the years of training and simulation and we'd gone through some of the guys have gone clear from Mercury. I've gone all through Gemini and into Apollo. And this was our big game. When, when we had the challenge of Apollo 13, it, this was our game. We could pull this out, but we got to be at our best. So nobody panicked. No, there was no panic. There was no concern. Jerry, when you talk about, you say training and simulation, I think, you know, it's uh, it's not like today's computer games. The simulations that you all did in Gemini and Apollo that we did in the shuttle, they're very, very realistic. Yes. Uh, they're so realistic, and you know they're leading to a big game. So no one's faking it. No one's taking it lightly. You're kind of really living the sim as if it is reality. And you've got instructors that throw all sorts of fake problems at you through the computers, and you, you muff a lot of them in the sims. You don't get it right. And and then you step back all together as a team and you talk through, what did I miss? And so when you've, when you've been through that kind of simulation that really helps you see what you need to pay attention to, what you missed, what you could have done better, I think a lot of people don't appreciate the richness of experience that those simulations give you that make you feel, okay, here's another one pops up, let's get at it instead of, oh my God, what is this? Yeah, you know, boy, you're right on. I, I kind of liken it to a, a marathon runner that puts on combat boots and runs on the beach to train. And then when he gets to the real race, puts on running shoes and runs on a hard surface. Piece of cake. <laughs> it's quite different. And the simulation guys, they would bring us to our knees. They could heap on uh, one thing after another. And finally we would, you know, we would either screw up or we'd make a right call on the board or something. But it was hours and hours of simulation. I 
I used to kid the Apollo crews in the early part there, 11, 12. They would go to go land on the moon, then go on a world tour. Well, two or three days later, we were simulating for the next mission. I said, you know, we never got a break. And uh, yeah. we didn't. So the point of all that is, is that preparation. And that's what I try to tell kids in college to grade school is the preparation that it takes to do difficult things. And, and that's what we, we were ready for it. And so I really think the, uh, I think the, the message here is if you've, you've got this teamwork, you know, I call it the era of, of we, we almost lost the pronoun I. It was, we did this and we did that, or we are, we are going to do this, or we did that or whatever. And it didn't make any difference who did it. The way we characterized it was, we did it. Was it really that unselfed inside the team? Because my sense of that era is it was sort of a locker room, Air Force squadron, elbows out, kind of poking each other, joshing each other, whether it was teasing or, you know, I'll oh, beat yeah. you to the corner. Was that fully understood by everybody that your buddies are roughing you up just to make sure you get stronger and better, not to take you out of the game? Absolutely. And in fact, we used to gripe at the simulation guys because they'd throw us so many problems at once. That's not going to happen. And uh, after Apollo 13, they kind of said, see, we told you <laughs> <laughs> that uh, you could get a bunch of stuff that really got bad. Except for Apollo 13, I can't say that I think the training in the Sims really made the difference in making us successful. It, it, it went easily. And the other thing that amazes me, Kathy, is about the fidelity of those simulations. This was in the 60s, in early 70s. As you mentioned earlier, the simulations were real. Sitting in the control center, we could not tell the difference. Uh, it all looked like real data. They were crews in a simulator across the campus. And it looked so real that, that it, it could have been real. And you would sweat real sweaty, sweat. When sweaty the, hands and the whole yeah. bit. You know, Jerry, there's one other part of the real Apollo 13 I'd like to ask you about before we talk a little more about your experience with the movie Apollo 13. And, and that is, there's a loud bang a lot of indicators like pressures and oxygen tanks dropping. So there's there's a whole lot of, there's one noise, one human perception, and then a whole lot of data that you guys are sorting through with all your engineering wisdom. And based on your knowledge of the system and how it was wired and how it was plumbed and basic physics, pressure's going down, it must mean certain things. Just based on that, you concluded this must be what has happened and you acted and went down the pathway you did to bring everybody home. When they're back just about to enter Earth's atmosphere, one of the final things they did was get back in the command module, unplug from the back end, the service module and the lunar module, and finally turned around and got a picture of the back end where the noise had come from. When did you guys in the control center see that picture, and what did... What did it feel like to finally see? I mean, nowadays we're so used to having visual a visual sense of things before we look at the data. You guys had to do it the other way around. You had only numbers and figures. You had to make an engineering judgment and a mental model of what happened. And then you had to bet the ranch on that mental model. And it wasn't until you know, a few minutes before the story was over 
that you got a picture that showed you, holy crap, yeah. <laughs> look at that. What was that like? Well, you know, the funny thing about it, let me back up a little bit. Finally, when we knew we were in trouble, Jim Lovell, the commander, said something that led us to believe something let go back there because he looked out the window and he could see something venting. Uh. He says, Lovell said, that at that point I knew we were in trouble, that this was not going to be recoverable. That kind of gave us a hint. We didn't see that picture of the side of the service module that was gone until after the mission, because we had no capability to downlink, send down photos real time. Yeah, I came home in a camera and had to get developed. Yeah, it had to get developed, and yeah. we finally saw it. But as soon as they separated, Lovell again came on, and he looked at it, and he said, oh, my, or something like that. He said, the whole side of that thing is gone. And it wow. had blown the panel that covered all this O2 stuff up. So we had cast our die that we were going to get in and that command yeah. module, get it powered up and enter and try to figure out later maybe what happened to a greater degree. But all of us knew we had had an explosion of some kind because it blew the yeah. side of the panel off that Lovell explained to us. We couldn't see it. Yeah. Scary. But I'm almost glad we didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, that's a good point. And the real Apollo 13, you're working you know, alongside and face-to-face -face with, as I've said before, these gigantic names of early American spaceflight, Tom Paine and George Lowe and George Miller and Krantz, who has sort of become the legendary flight controller. And I want to ask you a couple of questions now and get your experience about working on the movie, because before we shift gears, let's just add, because you're too modest to say this, you and others on the Apollo 13 team were awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for bringing those guys home safely. So thank you for that and congratulations on that award. But yeah. now it's movie time and you're working alongside other gigantic names like Ron Howard and Tom Hanks and Gary Sinise. And tell me more about what that was like. You, you were surprised. You thought Ron was not going to make a movie because the transcripts were so dull. Yeah. When did you find out that, in fact, he was? About 30 days after we met with, with uh, Ron Howard. And by the way, he brought with him. We thought it was just going to be Ron Howard. And he brought with him Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, Bill Paxton that played the crew. He also brought the writer and the head of Universal Studios and a bunch of other people with him. They didn't say much, although Tom Hanks said a lot. It was clear that he, he was prepared. He knew most of what happened on Apollo 13. In fact, he asked, he asked us a question at one time like this. You did a mid-course maneuver on the way home at so many hours, ground elapsed time. What was that for? <laughs> we said, heck, it was 25 years ago. We'd have to go look. You know. Pretty good for an actor. <laughs> but he was really well prepared. And what happened was, I think Ron Howard listened to us all, and we said, uh, we weren't scared. And he said, I'm trying to find out if there's enough emotion in this thing to make a movie. And um, he told us that right from the beginning. But we didn't want to lie to him or anything. We weren't scared. That wasn't the right word. We were concerned and prepared to jump on it and handle it the best we could. And if that wasn't good enough, that's all we could do. So about 30 days later, and I don't know why he 
call me exactly, but I got a call from Ron who said, uh, would you like to be a technical advisor for this movie? And I said, sure. I didn't know what I was getting into. What I was getting into about five months of my life would be controlled by Universal Studios. I wouldn't be home very much. And I would be in California a lot and on site, on location, a couple of other times, like at Ellington and places like that, Ellington Air Force Base. But I, su- I signed a deal. Uh, they have a thing called a deal mill. And, and went out there. Jerry Bostick, who was a flight dynamics officer, one of the trajectory guys, was also a technical advisor. They knew how to strong in systems and was a flight director. And they also knew that Jerry knew a lot about the uh, trajectory stuff. And then they had Dave Scott, who worked with the crew inside the, inside the command module primarily. Um, and Dave lived out there, so it was easy for him to do it. He later the commander of Apollo 15. So when, I, when we got out there, it was, to say the least, I learned a lot. And I started using the right side of my brain for the first time in my life because I'd always been so engineering-oriented, want to answer, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, there's more than one way to skin a cat, I, I figured out. But it, from the get-go... <laughs> If he said it once, Ron Howard said, I'm not making a documentary. I'm making an entertaining film that I want to be factually correct. That's why I need you. I've got to take some license to make this thing entertaining. And he said, but stick with me, stick on my hip. And if you see something wrong, tell me. So I did. And a lot of times he said, I'm not making a documentary. <laughs> Let me say this again. Let me say this again. He, he said it a lot, but he was great to work with. The actors were were fun. Jerry and I got there early. Jerry Bostick and I got out there early, briefed all of the flight controller actors. It was really fun. Oh, wow. The day we went all day with them, told them what a flight controller did and how they act. And they all had long wow. hair, you know, and, yeah, <laughs> that's going to go. First <laughs> day on the set, all of them were crew cuts Buzz cut. and short haircuts and skinny ties and short sleeve shirts. And <laughs> and uh, they looked just like Pocket us. protectors. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you mentioned that the failure is not an option line was never actually said. I spent an awful lot of time with Ed Harris, who played the Gene Kranz role. He had the vest. And Gene was on duty when the tank exploded. You know, if I'd been on duty or Lunny or Milt Wimmer was the fourth flight, we had 14. Uh, we would have been in a role that, that Kranz was in. But Ron told me early on, Ron Howard said, Jerry, I don't have time to develop four characters as flight directors. I just, the movie's going to be too long as it is. So you have to make one of them iconic. He said one of them needs to be a composite character. And since Gene was on duty, that made me, I said, okay. Some of the people that saw the film later, NASA people said, oh, my gosh, it, you know, Kranz was there for three and a half, four days, never left the control center. That wasn't, <laughs> yeah. And they said, yeah, yeah, it's OK. It's OK. It'll be all right. I asked Glenn Lunny once what he thought about Apollo 13. I, I thought they did a superb job. And I remember seeing it for my first time with a colleague of mine who was a he'd become a four star admiral, but his signature period of his career was as the commanding officer of a, an attack submarine. 
the movie ended, he just looked down the row at me, didn't say a thing, just looked at me like, well. And I said, that's where I come from. Those are my guys. But I asked Glenn what he thought about the movie once, and he, he went into quite a harumph and said, that's funny, I thought I was there. <laughs> yeah, it probably bothered Glenn more than Milt or me. But Glenn was the one that, and understandably, Prance had a problem on his hand that he had to get under control, you know, and it was a little bit chaotic. Now, chaotic, as you know, in the control center is not much different than normal. Not much outward chaos. Yeah, there's not much outward to it, but he had a lot to deal with and trying to do certain things. When Glenn came in, in fact, Ken Mattingly, uh, who was replaced on that flight for a reason, for measles exposure, flew later on Apollo 16. But Ken said he thought that Glenn did the best job of flight directing he had ever seen. Uh, he calmed things down. It got much more business-like. But by that time, we had taken Kranz's team off, and they were off trying to figure out how they had shut that command module down and already started right then trying to figure out how to get it powered back up when we needed it. So I think it was uh, it was okay to have that composite character, but it did it really did kind of mislead what was going on. Yeah. There were four teams working their rear ends off. Four teams and a couple hundred people, yeah. not one yeah. guy. Not one guy dumping a box of stuff on a table. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's your net net sense of the movie? Anything they took license with that still bugs you a bit today? Or this this launched you into quite a film career, by the way. You know, were you were on console and contact, if I remember, I and was. also worked in. Uh, Several other films. You remember with Screen Actors Guild? I mean, I'm a union man. The new Jerry Griffin. <laughs> I think the, the movie did a great job of what Ron was trying to do is make an entertaining movie that told the story. In a documentary that had already been done several times to the real geeks, that probably meant more to them. But to the general public, I think Apollo 13, the movie, was easier for them to understand and understand the crisis and the, that piece of it. But it, I, I have to admit, it took me a while. And it was actually later films. I got to watching how it happened and how that how they're made. And I learned a lot about what it is. In fact, even on Apollo 13, I kept talking to Tom Hanks and Bill Paxton and, and Kevin Bacon about movie making. Why are they doing this? And why the lights here and there now? They were all they wanted to talk about was the real flight, so we were kind of talking past each other. <laughs> that would um, be fun. Yeah, they, you know, they were really wanting to know about us and what happened. Well, there's a whole lot more of them than there are of people like you who've actually taken people to the moon and back. So yeah. I can imagine yeah. that curiosity was pretty intense. Fun. It was it, the movie making business is fun. In fact, the third movie I worked on was one called Deep Impact, and that was a uh, Robert Duvall, his friends call him Bobby. But Robert Duvall, I spent a weekend with him uh, and his horse farm back in Virginia, going through the script before we ever started production. And it was things like that that really made all of that experience in, in La La Land interesting. It is the people that I got yeah. to meet and work with and watch them perform. Since we're back on people uh, and being just mindful of our time yes. here, Let's come back to the broad question of people, people and organizations, people coming together to try to 
do things, to make a movie, to conduct a spaceflight, to run a business. You shifted after a number of years at NASA in 1986, you shifted to the private sector and I know spent quite a fair amount of time as a, a search executive with Corn Ferry, helping find the talents needed to be CEOs or CFOs at, at different companies, for-profit and non-profit. I tried to, tried to recruit you. Once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious with all we've touched on about the ethos, the culture, the mindset that you came from, Air Force through NASA. I'm curious, when you switched to the private sector and, and to Corn Ferry, what parts of all of that do you think, and what parts of your insights about teams and organizations and performance, what parts that you brought with you do you think transferred most powerfully and effectively into the private sector, broader world? And what did you see not transfer so well? That What new things did you have to learn or did you come to recognize? That transition for me, actually, from the public to the private sector, in a way, started right after Apollo, although I was still with NASA. Now, that might sound strange, but I got a call right after Apollo within 30 days. Actually, I got it from Chris Kraft, but he said, they want to talk to you at headquarters about a new job. And I said, who does? And I said, George Lowe and Jim Fletcher. And that was the, Jim was the head of NASA and George was the deputy administrator at that point. Kraft wouldn't tell me what it was about, which was typical Kraft. So I suited up and went to Washington and they said, we want you to be the head of legislative affairs. I said, what? A Texas Aggie Aeronautical Engineer, you know, run legislative affairs for the agency? And they said, yeah, we're trying to save the shuttle. They had almost lost it. Walter Mondale had put up a, an amendment and it only got defeated by one vote. So they were concerned that the shuttle was not going to stick. This was 1972. So they said, we need somebody that understands the technical side of the business and can put one word in front of another and simplify it and blah, blah, blah. And so I was the first non-lawyer that ever went into that job. Well, I saw a different part of the world there. I saw contractors I, in a different light. I saw members of Congress, Senate, House, staff, you know, which I know you're very familiar with. The staff really kind of runs the place. And senators talk and the staff add the words. But it was eye-opening to me that you know, this was, this was politics, but it also had a business flavor to it. After four years, I said, guys, let me out of here. I got to go somewhere else and back to the real world because Washington has a way of sucking you into it and uh, you can't get out because it's kind of neat, you know, White House dinners and receptions on the hill and it's a pretty cool place to be. But I wanted to get back to action. They so I went to the desert. They sent me to the desert in California at Edwards to be the deputy director out there. Then they asked me to go to the Cape to be the deputy director. And then I came back to JSC to be the director. And the reason I follow that chain is because in the process of all that, I had seen a different side of NASA. I had seen Washington. And when I got back to JSC as director, then I interfaced with downtown Houston quite a bit. Head of Exxon, head of Tenneco, head of Shell, head of the big banks, the insurance companies, all of that. I, I had reason to be with them, usually socially, but I got to know them. I was prepared to stay at JSC until I was 
kicked out. It was a great job. It wasn't as good a job as being a flight director in mission control, but it was close. <laughs> I didn't have you riding up to the house on a bicycle ever was in a while, <laughs> as often anyway. But anyway, I was sitting in my office one day in a search firm, different firm than I finally went to work for later, called and said, uh, the leaders of Houston would like to talk to you. I said, about what? I said, about a job. They want you to do something for them. They want you to be the head of the Greater Houston Chamber of Commerce. I said, why me? And I said, well, they said, Houston's economic ox is in a ditch and they need to get out. They're too dependent on energy and not enough on biotech and health and space and other technical subjects. And they think you're the guy that'll lead them, get that ox out of that ditch. So I said, no, I'm not interested. Well, about 30 days later, they called again and said they would just like to meet with you. So I had a secret meeting up at Hobby Airport, seven o'clock in the morning, breakfast. You know, when I walked into this place, I was looking out, I was looking into the eyes of the leaders of Houston, all of them, must have been 12 of them. They said, we really want you to come help us. And I said, guys, I got one of the best jobs in the world. And, you know, I'm head of the Johnson Space Center. Well, the guy that was running the thing had written a number with a dollar sign in front of it, held it out in front of me. A little larger than a JSC salary. <laughs> I kind of, maybe I better think about this a little deeper. So they told me what they were after. I said, well, let me go think about it. And the more I thought about it, I said, you know, I've, Shuttle was doing well at that time, and I left in December 85, and of course the Challenger accident happened about a month later, but at the time I said, you know, we're operational, we're flying good, things are working okay, and I looked at that number again, and I said, I better take this option, so I did, and it was not an easy decision, but on the other hand, it broke me out of the pack even farther because I had done some things in NASA that most guys don't get to do in different centers. But this broke, broke me out. I never will forget Don Jordan, who was the head of HLMP, Houston Lighting and Power, said, you're going to like it on the outside. I can buy you a drink and dinner legally. <laughs> anyway, he did more than once. But every one of the changes I made in my life, in my career, I was on a steep learning curve again, just like going to the hill and trying to figure that sausage making out. Now, I kind of had a four-year clock in my head that I didn't count on. But when I look back, about every four years, I can, hmm, got this job figured out, I guess. I wonder what's next. You know, my, my transition from NASA to the private sector, but I was prepared for it. The training that I had gotten, the, the, the Critical thinking and problem solving was probably the thing I brought to the organizations that I was a part of later. And rather than studying it to death, and it was more of a, let's get it done. There are ways that we can do this and make things better, whether it's a company or a 501c3 or what. So I really think my training or my preparation in NASA actually helped me in the private sector. The private sector did some things better that I uh, had to learn. Like what? Well, for instance, uh, the financial controls of, of a company or of a, an organization that had to report taxes becomes very critical. 
and you can talk pie in the sky and we want to do this and we want to do that, but then there's a certain reality that, that you can't do it. Now, some of that is present in the, uh, in the public sector as well with budgets, but it's different. You got the Congress and all these people, the yeah. private company, the money is the money and the financial control is what I probably had to learn more that was different and what you had to do and what you had to do with the feds in a public company. What you had to yeah. reporting and all that was just massive. Yeah. What did you find, if anything, that were uh, the key similarities or differences in organizational culture, the in- internal culture? You know, how, how do we come together to do this work? I found in the private sector that there was less teamwork than I thought there should have been in most cases. It was particularly true of the search business. Every partner was kind of out for themselves. They used the personal pronoun I a lot. There was little we in it. But every other private sector thing, uh, the teamwork was unlike, some of them were pretty good at it, but but it was shallow. It was not like, and, and we had an advantage at NASA. We were all kind of thrown into this mass. None of us made a lot of money. We were like a big family. Our parties were in each other's houses usually somebody bring beans and somebody bring booze. I mean, it would be that simple. So in the public sector, the teamwork's kind of ended when they walked out the door at night to go home. And we never had that feeling at NASA. It stuck with us. So there was that difference that I had to get used to, but I tried to strengthen the teamwork. I'm curious about something on that teamwork topic that I've wondered about as I've moved from sector to sector. And you've kind of framed it perfectly the strength to which everyone shared purpose at NASA, you know, commitment to getting the mission done, commitment to bringing people home alive. There's that. But another aspect of what either helps or hinders teamwork is my sense in a lot of the private sector world is there's a premise, a belief that competing against each other, competing with each other is the way to get peak performance out of people. And as you said, there wasn't an, an eye culture very much at NASA. There was, you weren't trying to outrun the other guy. You weren't trying to take their glory, represent yourself as having come up with their answer. You kind of were all in it together. So I, I wonder what your sense is, A, if you think that's a valid dichotomy, and B, what your sense is of in the shallow teamwork that you observed in the private sector is it equal measure because there's this create a competitive incentive domain and there's you're really not deeply committed to a common purpose or is one dominant? I think you're right on the money. The private sector thrives on competition amongst themselves. They want to show out as I'm the best in this firm or whatever, or the best at this business, piece of the business. And, and they get awarded with bonus and so forth and so on. Well, that kind of competition is okay in certain places, but it's totally different than NASA. We were never in competition with each other. Now, I, I felt if there was any competition, it was more amongst the astronauts, but most of it was fun. And uh, that came from fighter pilots and deep sea divers and all kinds of people that live in that kind of, uh, of environment. But even at the astronaut level, they were self-deprecating. If they made a mistake, they would fess up. 
And by the way, I often thought, and this was true of the flight controllers and the astronauts, you know, they, they weren't afraid of dying so much. They didn't want to, but they knew they were in a high risk business, but their greatest fear was making a mistake in front of their peers. That drove a lot of flight controllers too, because you wanted to do your best because you didn't want to make, I don't want to be responsible for making it work, the bad call or whatever. There's even kind of an adage, you know, I'd rather die than look bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jerry, you have a lot of uh, opportunities, I know these days still, to speak to established leaders and aspiring leaders and young folks. What do you give them in the way of advice? how to shape a career and the real secret of leading effectively, your secrets of leading effectively. Yeah. I try to tell the people I speak to adults, as well as kids, college age and, and younger that preparation is vital, no matter whether you're going to be an accountant or whether you're going to be a land agent for the state of Texas or whatever, you've got to get prepared. And it seems like so many kids nowadays want to try to lay out their whole track. And I said, if there was ever a case, and I bet you're one too, Kathy, that if there was ever a case where I didn't know where all this was going to take me, but I listened to opportunities. And if it meant moving to the East Coast, or if it meant moving to the West Coast, or if it meant going to West Texas or wherever, I always listen, what's next for me? Or what could be next for me? And I, I try to tell kids, don't try to lay out this business. Well, I, I, I had one at AM just the other day I was talking to this young arrow major, and he wants, well, I want to be in the Dallas Fort Worth area when I graduate. I said, boy, you are li really limiting your possibilities. And I said, if that's what you want, go for it. But I said, I don't advise people to do that. You better look. You can probably come back to DFW someday. Yeah. But any of those decisions is going to have its cascade of consequences, that's right. right? I mean, it's that's right. It's legitimate to decide geography is my anchor point and I want to be here. Yeah. It's not clearly how you or I steered through life. Well, but... I look at your background and my gosh, you know, you've been checkerboarded all over the place. Columbus and dang me places. But you listened. You listened to other opportunities. And opportunities to grow, as, as you were saying. And, and expand yourself. So to me, that's probably the most important message I try to get across. Now, I do say, too, when you get into there's a difference between a manager and a leader. And I said, people can manage projects and things like that, but you lead people. And I said, so think about that early on. Watch the leaders that you like and use them as role models. That's what I did. I, I got to watch guys like George Lowe and none of those other names that we've mentioned, shoving decisions down to the lowest. GS7 could make a decision on his own. And it would stick. And it would stick. Yeah. So I said, you know, watch the leaders that you admire. You know, I can think back in the case, this is an important point about leadership. In the case of Chris Kraft, who was the father of mission control and all of that, we wanted to do good for him, to make him look good. And boy, you talk about a leader. When you think of someone in that regard where you want to shine to make them look good, and there's someone above you, 
that's a true leader. He has inspired you to do your best. And in the process, you want to return that to him. So remember, leaders lead people, managers manage things and projects and so forth. There's a difference. <laughs> that's a great point to wrap up on. It's, uh, we used to joke in the Astro office now, and then I'd swap a couple hundred pounds of all this management for a few ounces of leadership. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Well, you know exactly. Really, you do. You know exactly what I'm talking about because... You know, I even suspect you wanted to do good for me <laughs> when I was the center director. Well, you bet I did. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, well, as an assumption that, you know, I, I say jokingly, but we had great leaders. Golly, we had great leaders. Yeah. And then we had guys that were my peers that were good, too, like Lonnie Kranz and others. You were leading from right where you were. It was not about what title you had. It was about leading from right where you were. And we didn't think about it. All of this came to us later. Uh, it was just like Apollo. Most of, We knew we were doing something important, but the historical significance did not hit us till later. We were too busy. Yeah. And it's amazing to me how interested people are now, 50 years later, still talking about it. Yeah, still motivated by it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jerry Griffin, I am motivated now to be sure that we stay in even closer contact. And as soon as COVID allows, either you and Sandy come up here or I'll come on down and see you guys in the hill country of Texas. We need to do that. All, you know, Kirk and Gwen both feel like you're kind of part of the family, always have, mainly because you just stop by every once in a while. Crashed your house when I was out riding my bike. Yep. Yep. <laughs> always fun. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and telling us... Uh, the inside scoop on the real and the movie Apollo and sharing your perspectives on leading. Your series is super, what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I think it, uh, I was repeated it to Kirk this morning. He said, you've already told me about it. <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, tell me what she's doing. Well, give him my best. Okay. Well, I'll tell all the family hi and you take care. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.